You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. You can be seated. If you'll uh, turn over to the book of Jude, uh, Jude, remember no chapters, we'll just pick it up in verse 5. Just turn over to the book of Jude. While you're finding your place, just a couple of things. Uh, number one, I received this card this week, um, and I wanted to read it to you. It has a nice little cross attached to it there, and it says, uh, Dear prayer team, thank you so much for the beautiful prayer for me on Sunday. This is last Sunday. God bless you as you cover Lumberton in prayer. This is from Miss Helen Odom, and uh, she's watching this morning. Miss Helen, it was a privilege for our team to come and pray with you. This is part of our Pray and Go ministry. Our teams were out and uh, had an opportunity to pray for Miss Helen. And she took the time to write a card to tell us how much she appreciated that. If you're allowing fear to keep you from going out uh, with us on Sunday afternoons, uh, don't allow fear to paralyze you. We go out every Sunday afternoon and evening when it's not uh, raining, of course. And we have the streets mapped out. Uh, We're somewhere right around 1,600 homes at this point. That we pray for our goal is 6,000. Yeah, that's a big goal. But as we have found week after week after week, there are people out there who um, are in need of prayer. And uh, they're amazed and shocked that someone would take the time to come to where they are and pray for them. So if you've not been part of that, 5 p.m. every Sunday afternoon, just meet out here in the foyer. We'll put you with some of them. If it's your first time, there's no need to be afraid. And the second thing I wanted to mention to you is the song we just got through singing I'm convinced that every single person is trusting something in their life to bring them joy, to take away fear, to give them purpose and meaning. So I have to ask you the question this morning off the song we just sung and what we're getting ready to get into in this text. Is what you're putting your trust in giving you that kind of hope? Giving you that kind of security? Is is what you're putting your trust in giving you that kind of assurance whereby you can live a life of joy, purpose, and meaning? Well, if it's not giving you that, then it may be that you're putting your faith in the wrong place. That empty tomb that we just sung about, that is the only place in this world, in this culture, in my life that I have ever found, that empty tomb representing the Christ who died for my sins, resurrected, that is the only place I've been able to find any kind of true, lasting peace in my life. I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus if you've tried everything else and it's failed you. Start in Jude, verse 5. Jude writing, he says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains until gloomy darkness, until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people, they blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds. Fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead and uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the glory of utter, or for the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Father, we pause in this moment and we ask for your help and your guidance this morning. Father, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude wrote exactly what you wanted him to write down. And Father, what he wrote is somewhat perplexing. It's a little bit difficult for us to wrap our arms around. So Father, we rely on you, we rely on the Holy Spirit. We rely, Father, on your guidance and wisdom to help us to understand and apply what we see in the text before us this morning. May you be exalted here. 
may no one's name or presence take precedence over you. For Father, we are servants, your servants, for those who put their faith in you. And, and so Father, we, we seek to hear your voice this morning. So Father, we ask that you would speak to us clearly through your word, through the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Christ's name, amen. Last week we talked about a common salvation. Common not meaning that it's like every day, that it's like very easily understood and well known. Common meaning that every single person that's ever come to faith in Christ has come to faith in Christ exactly the same way as those who preceded you. They have placed their faith in Jesus. Every single follower of Christ has come to Christ and come into the kingdom through the cross of Jesus Christ where his blood was shed that we may be forgiven and set free from our sins and our past. It is through his death on the cross. It is through his resurrection from that grave. It is through his ascension to the Father at the right hand. It is through that that a person is saved. And there is no other way. It is a common salvation. And we, as followers of Christ, form a long link of chains that go all the way back to Pentecost. All the way back to Acts chapter 1 when the Holy Spirit fell and the church began. We are part of this common salvation that God's love found you, that God's love pursued you, that God called you from eternity past into his salvation, and he put people in your path that shared the gospel with you. And at that place, in that moment, the Holy Spirit drawing you, you were redeemed, you were forgiven, and you were set free. That is the common salvation by which Jude speaks. But not only that, he says it is a faith that has been handed down to us, a faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So not only this common salvation that we've all been born again into the kingdom through the same bloody cross of Jesus. But not only that, we have been handed a faith. And this faith is not meant to end with us. This faith is meant to be given away. It is a faith once handed down. We don't have the opportunity to change it. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. The gospel itself needs no changes. The gospel itself needs no updates. God's word by which we understand our faith. It is perfect and pure, cover to cover, and we can trust in it. So we've been handed a common salvation. We've been handed a, a faith passed down once for all. And so last week I told you that this makes the, the gospel, the, the faith, very, very valuable and very, very important. It is the only thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is the only thing that can take someone who is dead in their sins and make them a son or a daughter of God. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so beautiful and so amazing that it can take someone who is living in outright rebellion and even hatred towards God, change their heart, change them from the inside out, and make them a brand new person from the inside out. There is no philosophy. There is no religion. There is no a uh, sage out there on a stage somewhere that can give you what the gospel can give you. It has been once handed down, and it needs no updates, and it needs no changes. So this morning, we're going to look at those, the characteristics of those who hate the gospel, who hate the church, and seek to destroy it. I told you last week that Jude is writing this letter to a church, a group of believers, to say to them, there are people who are trying to creep in unnoticed and their sole desire is to tear down, destroy, and to quite frankly break the fellowship of the local church. Jude, half-brother of Jesus who doesn't even mention that, and in his humility writes this letter to say to us, we better pay attention because there are wolves who present themselves as sheep. And they hope to creep into your fellowship unnoticed because they hate what you believe. Even though they present themselves as someone just like you who loves God, loves Christ, loves the gospel, you don't have to scratch blow below the surface to find out that there are some serious problems in the life of the wolf who presents himself or herself as a sheep. On November 18th, 1978, the world was shocked at just how much influence a false teacher can have over a congregation of people. You see, there was a church that was started in the mid to late 50s, started in San Francisco called the People's Temple. 
And this church was started by just a few people. I think it was about eight or ten people started this church. But, but what happened over those next years blew, it, blew everyone's mind. This church grew from just a handful of people to thousands and thousands of people. People were driving all the way across the United States to be part of the people's temple. They, they heard that there were miraculous healings that were happening. They, they heard that there was a, a fellowship there where, where people were loved and accepted and, and that there was true joy to be found in what this particular preacher was proclaiming. Uh, they grew this church to 5,000 people in attendance and they were meeting in all different various locations. They, they claimed to have 20,000 followers by the time you get to the early 70s. But, but you don't have to scratch very much below the surface of this leader to find out that he had some serious, serious character issues. And in fact, though he was presenting himself as a sheep, you didn't have to look very far into his life to find out this guy was a wolf. You see, his name was Jim Jones. And Jim Jones had a ministry, and you can watch the services on YouTube. They're right there. You can watch them. It's incredible. If you didn't know the backstory, if you didn't know any of the story, if you just if you just turned on one of these services on YouTube and just watched it, you'd think, "My goodness, God is working there." A worship team larger than what you just saw on the stage. Uh, a preacher, pastor, leader who was fiery. I mean, he he was a fiery guy in the pulpit. I mean, he could really be convincing. You look across the congregation of thousands of people, and it was a very diverse congregation. People from all walks of life. You had, you had people who were highly educated. You had people who had come out of drug addiction, and, and they came into this fellowship, and what they found was love, and what they found was acceptance, and what they found was purpose. Matter of fact, there's interviews of people in the 70s who experienced the, the people's temple, and they were absolutely, completely in love with this, what they thought was a movement of God. Jim Jones, it was an interesting thing. This man, he, he took some facets, facets of religion and socialism and he just kind of mixed them all together. And, and this one service in particular just really got my attention. Places packed, thousands of people. And they're dancing and they're singing and it's just a big, huge celebration. And all of a sudden, Jim Jones is in front of the congregation. He points to a woman in a wheelchair in the back of the room. And he says to her, lady, today is your lucky day. Today, you are going to walk out of that wheelchair. You're going to walk today. I'm going to heal you. And he commands the woman to stand up. He commands the woman to stand. The story is that, that she had never stood. She had never walked in, hadn't walked in years. Came in in a wheelchair. A couple people assist her and and they help her stand up. After she gets stand up, she's standing on her own. And then she takes a couple of full, a couple of shaky steps, and the congregation is just dead silent in the room. And, and Jim Jones is commanding her to walk, walk, walk. And about that time, after a little bit of unsteady steps, she starts walking, and she starts walking. And the next thing you know, she's running and clapping, and the place goes wild. Jim Jones has just healed a woman who could not walk. part the congregation didn't know was that woman was one of his secretaries she had no problem walking at all a false teacher who would eventually get found out a little bit by the media the media would begin to do some reports and find out that the people who were part of the of the people's temple were not allowed to leave, not allowed to talk to other people, were isolated from their families. So this got the attention of the media, and the media began to interview people and come to find out there were some people who wanted to leave but were afraid to. And this started to get out into the, into the news, and, and so Jim Jones said, you know what, it's time for us to leave. It's time for us to leave America and go to a place that I've been preparing down in the jungles of Guyana in South America. And literally overnight, as he, he knows this article is about to go in all the big publications, overnight, this congregation begins to leave and go to South America where he'd been building basically a compound. And over 900 people join him there. The news media follow him down there. They're doing interviews with the people in the compound, and they're just 
this is the greatest thing I've ever found. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And these people sold their houses, sold everything they had, and gave it to the church. And he would give them an allowance to live off of. And these people were convinced that they had found heaven on earth. And they found some kind of God who would speak to them every week. Jim Jones would tell these people, he said, look, I can be your father. I can be your husband. I can be your savior. And I can be your God. And that's exactly what those people believed. They get down there through a series of, of events. Jim Jones decides that and tells his people, he gathers them together. He says, look, the government's coming for us. They're going to take your children. They're going to abuse your children. They're going to kill your children. They're going to kill you. They're coming. So we must do something. We must bridge to the next life. We must leave this place and go to the next life. So here's what we're going to do. I've got these blue barrels up here, and I want you to come, and I want you to, to get a cup of this Kool-Aid that is laced with cyanide. And I want you to give it to your children first. Infants, toddlers, adolescents. And then I want you to take it as well before they come to get us. There is 45 minutes of audio, recorded audio of that time. I do not recommend that you listen to it. But it is the closest thing to demonic power that I've ever heard. A guy on a stage telling his people to take the lives of their children and their own lives. Folks, death by cyanide is an awful, awful, horrific thing. And this guy is on the stage telling, encouraging, commanding these moms and dads to take the lives of their own children. Now, how in the world can one person have that much control over people who are they're not, they're not mentally disabled? These were, these were bankers, these were housewives, these were people who could reason and think for themselves. And yet, at the end of this, 909 people met their fate in the jungle of Galana because of a guy on the stage who told them that he was the truth. This is a heavy topic for me to lay on you this morning, but I do it for a reason. We're not just talking about false teachers who may mislead a few people. We're not just talking about false teachers who can, who can tell you something that may not be true. We're talking about something that is destructive and dangerous. And here's the scary thing, folks, in the age in which we live. These false teachers and these false prophets, they're not coming at you with a suit and tie. No, they're flowing through movies. They're throwing through video. They're flowing through Netflix. They're flowing through social media. And they've got a whole lot of Christian people's attention. And they're false teachers. And they seek to kill, steal, and destroy. And we think it's just entertainment. Jude is going to give us some characteristics of what a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like. He's going to give us several of them. And, and so the reality is, is that even though they present themselves as sheep, you don't have to work very hard to find out that they're wolves. So let's look at some of these characteristics. Pick it up in verse 5. Now what Jude is going to do is he's going to go back in the Old Testament. He's going to pull some imagery from the Old Testament to say, look, false teachers have been around for years. This is not a new thing. And we know exactly who they are. We know exactly how they operate. So this is what Jude wants us to understand. Now I want to remind you that although you once knew it, now remember, that faith that's been handed down once for all. He says to this church, this group of believers, he says, you once knew this. I think in that statement, Jude's beginning to reveal that he's concerned about this group of believers that these false teachers are beginning to have an influence. He says, you once knew this, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, this is a strange thing that Jude says. Because if you know the Old Testament story of, of Egyptian bondage of the Israelite people, you know that, that God you know, unleashed plagues, that Moses was God's mouthpiece and he would send Moses to Pharaoh and tell Moses to, or tell Pharaoh to let God's people go and he would refuse over and over again. So God pours out these plagues. But Jude, interestingly, again, pointing to the, the Trinity, the Godhead Trinity of Jesus, the Son of God, also the part of the Trinity, the Son or the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Jude says that, hey, you know that it was Jesus who was involved in setting the people free. Well, yeah. 
Jesus being part of the Trinity? Yeah, he was certainly involved. But listen to what he says. He says, but afterwards, they destroyed those people who did not believe. So here's the first characteristic of a wolf in sheep's clothing, unbelief. Now, you may think that's odd. Well, now, wait a minute. If they present themselves as a believer, but they actually don't believe? No, they don't. There was a moment... There was a moment when Jim Jones was speaking to his congregation in San Francisco, and he takes the Bible, he takes the Bible, and he holds it up, and he says, this book, this book that so many of you believe in, he says, this book is nothing more than a book of oppression. By the way, we're hearing the same thing today. This is a book of oppression. This is a book that will hold you down. This is a book that will keep you from reaching your potential. And he takes the Bible, and he throws it out into the congregation, and he looks at the congregation, he says, I am your authority unbelief. They will show their hand pretty quickly. The Israelites witnessed the power of God in real time and real space. They saw the plagues poured out. They, they saw Pharaoh, the most powerful leader on the planet, brought to his knees where he finally said, get out. Two million people walked out. People who've been enslaved for 400 plus years we're now free. They go out in the Sinai wilderness and God speaks. They can, the Israelite people can hear God speaking, giving the law, telling his people that the people whom he set free by parting the Red Sea, destroying the most powerful nation on earth, bringing it to its knees. You are my people and I am your God and here's what I expect of you. So he gives them the commandments on how they're to live as his people. God says, I'm going to take you to a promised land, a land that I have marked out. It is your land. I promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that one day my people, the offspring of Abraham, would inhabit this land. I've marked it out. It is a land that is so abundant that it flows with milk and honey. I'm taking you to that home. And there you'll be able to thrive as my people. They make it to the border of the land. And the people said, you know, we, we better send some spies over there just to see kind of what we're up against. Spies go over, they come back, and the majority of those spies look at the leadership and look at the nation of Israel and says, look, there is no way we could take that land. Here's what they were actually saying. They were saying, God, we don't believe that you're stronger than the ones who are in that land. We don't believe your promise. We don't believe that you're going to give us this land. And then they said this. They said the people over there are so powerful, we are but grasshoppers in their, in their sight. And it wasn't just that they were saying they were weak, but they were saying Jehovah God was but a grasshopper in the eyes of these pagan, idol-worshiping idol people who were living in the land. Unbelief. You know what God said? God said, okay, I'm going to let you go out in the wilderness. I'm going to let you wander around for 40 years, and everyone age 20 and over, you're going to die in that wilderness because of your unbelief. A false teacher, a false prophet, a wolf in sheep's clothing does not actually believe that Jesus Christ is the only way into the kingdom. And any myriad of beliefs that you have, they do not hold to. And here's the amazing thing. When trouble comes, you'll see who they really are. For the Israelite people, we found out that there's a whole bunch of people who just didn't believe. Even after all that they saw, they did not believe that God could give them the land. So they had unbelief. And unbelief always shows itself, always shows itself when hardship comes. Look at verse 6, the next characteristic. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he's kept them in eternal change and gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This refers back to a very difficult text in Genesis 6. I, I, I kind of wish Judah to pick something else. This is a hard one. Don't have the time. I'm going to be doing something in Genesis in the weeks ahead. But for now, Genesis 6 is a story of angelic beings, powerful angelic beings who kind of intermingled with humanity and had offspring, had children. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's like when you read it, it's like, what in the world is going on here? And and Jude is not taking us to Genesis 6 to kind of raise up that whole controversy. What does this text actually mean? He takes us there to teach us something about these false teachers. You see, not only do they not believe, but they're rebellious. They have rebellion in their heart. And what, what Jude does is he says, these angels who were supposed to stay within their boundaries, 
who, who were warned by God to stay within their boundaries, to not intermingle with human, humanity, broke that commandment and did what God would not be pleased with. They, they rebelled. And he said, as a result, those angels, we read about them when we walked through Revelation, these angels are now bound in a place of darkness until God chooses otherwise. Why does Jude give us that story? He gives us that story is because what he wants us to understand is that false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, they have no boundaries. They don't live within God's boundaries. You see, as a follower of Jesus, there are things that I cannot participate in as a follower of Christ. I just can't. Now, it's not because of, of, of God being up in heaven and and he doesn't like these things, so he, he's keeping some fun from me. Or he's, he's waiting for me to mess up so he can beat me about the head and shoulders. No, when I came to faith in Christ and, and my life changed from the inside out, I want to live my life honoring my king. Christ being that king, I want to honor him. And the best way to honor him and worship him is by the choices that I make every day. So there are things that I will not participate in in my life simply because I don't want to bring dishonor upon Christ and I don't want to hurt my witness. So therefore, I want to try my very best with the power of the Holy Spirit to live within his boundaries with what he has told me to do and not do. I do it as a choice to honor him, not to gain salvation, but as an act of love and adoration and worship for Christ. False teachers... They are in a state of rebellion. They, they will not submit themselves to the power of God's word. They will not surrender anything. If anything, false teachers want more and more and more power but have no boundaries on their life whatsoever. The third thing, verse 7. So we have unbelief, we have a rebellion. Look at this next one, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So we have now the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You know the story. This is an entire city that had given itself to all kinds of sexual deviancy, that, that God had established boundaries upon sexuality. And God says that within these boundaries is where blessing can be found. Where, where peace can be found, where joy can be found. But outside of these boundaries, you find chaos, destruction, depression, anxiety. Outside of these boundaries is where you destroy yourself. But inside of my model of what I have prescribed for sexuality, then and only there can you find peace. And that is through the marriage of one man and one woman. That is where sexuality is to be not only enjoyed, pursued, but within those confines. Outside of that, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality, all of those that are prevalent in the world today and prevalent in Sodom and Gomorrah is outside of God's will and boundaries for your life. There's a reason those boundaries are there. It's to protect you from yourself. Sodom and Gomorrah threw off all the boundaries. They were living for themselves. So God judged them. He says that, that there they were engaging in not only sexual immorality, but unnatural desire. That is, a homosexual desire, a, a same-gender connection of these people physically in this city welcomed God's judgment upon them. So why does, why does Jude bring this up? Well, sexual immorality is the next thing we find in false teachers. Look, you have seen the reports on the news down through the years. Some well-known ministry leader, some megachurch pastor, some guy who's, or some man or woman who's leading some huge ministry, all of a sudden you find out that the person on the stage was a persona, but what was going on behind the scenes was ungodly. And all of a sudden, their, their life that they kept hidden and their public life all of a sudden collide in public view. And the news loves these stories. Because it presents us as hypocrites, saying one thing while doing something completely different. Living your life in two modes, one religion, one just like the world. And Jude says, take a look at the boundaries they have in their life concerning sexuality. And if they have no boundaries, you better be careful how much, allow, how much influence you allow them to have in your life. Folks, our culture 
the movies that are coming out, the boundaries have been removed. There are no boundaries. And when I say a false teacher, don't think of a guy on a stage with a suit and tie. Think of the stuff that's streaming through your internet connection who are trying to influence you and your children especially. He says sexual immorality, cult leaders, false teachers, they have a tendency towards sexual immorality. You can go back in history and find some of these key false leaders. Jim Jones especially. I won't even share with you about what his life was behind the scene. It was horrific, demonic, and evil to the core. Unbelief, rebellion, sexual immorality. Look at verse 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, blaspheme the glorious ones. Right there you have, you have unbelief, you have sexual immorality, and you have rebellion. Right there summarized in that one verse, but what comes before it? He says they rely upon their dreams. This is interesting. A false teacher will always, always, always appeal to a source of truth other than God's perfect revelation in his word and in Christ the Son. So, so in what we understand scripturally is that God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself generally. You can look at the sun rising. You can look at the stars and I go, man, there's something in me that says there's a God out there, right? There's a, there's a general revelation. But then there is a specific revelation in two different factors. One, God's word. Revelation, a Genesis to Revelation. God has revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. He's also revealed himself in the life of the Son who lived on this planet and revealed to us who God the Father is, what the kingdom is all about. So we have two sources of specific revelation, Jesus and God's Word. The false prophet will always undermine one or both. And here's what they'll do. They'll supplant it with this. Well, I had a dream. You know how many false religions there are out there that started with some guy or some woman who had a dream and accounted that dream to God or an angel and then started an entire religion where thousands and thousands and thousands of people are following that today? Or it may be that they have a PhD. They have several doctorates. They are a leader of denominations. They, they have uh, a tremendous ministry. They've got some humongous church and have 20,000 showing up on Sunday morning. And that guy has all of this. Certainly we can believe him. What's his source of truth? Is he adding to God's word, taking away from God's word? Is he claiming that he's heard a special revelation from the Holy Spirit? I want you to hear me very clearly on this. Because this, inside the evangelical church, this happens. Somebody will say, I had a dream, or the Holy Spirit told me. Listen, if the Holy Spirit told you to divorce your husband or your wife, if the Holy Spirit told you that you had a dream and the Holy Spirit said to you that God's word is not true, if, if the Holy Spirit said to you that Jesus is not God's son, if the Holy Spirit told you that you can just stay at home and watch church on TV and it's exactly the same thing, let me tell you what's happening. The Holy Spirit is not speaking to you. You're being lied to. And folks, we need to wrap our arms around this. The Holy Spirit gets blamed for a lot of things. Oh, I had a dream. This appeal to some other source of truth other than what we know to be real and accurate, God's word and the revelation of his son. It doesn't matter what denominational leader you're listening to, what commentator writer you're reading. It does not matter what tradition tells you. If it contradicts the word of God, it is false. I, I don't know how any, any other way to make that any plainer. There are no other sources of truth. There are no new revelations. Listen, I'm having enough trouble living out what I got right here. I don't need anything new. I mean, I'm wrestling with just this. And when I look at life, the life of Christ and how, how far I missed the mark, don't give me anything else. But there is nothing else. Another source of truth. Look at verse 9. Again, this is a strange text in and of itself. We could spend a whole hour just on this, but we won't. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but instead he said, the Lord would rebuke you. So what, what is Jude doing with this? 
there's a couple of times in the New Testament, at least a couple, it might be three actually, but where the, the, the writers of the letter that you're reading, uh, inspired by God, uses an outside source to teach a lesson. So for example, if you go back to uh, Paul in Acts 17, he's in Athens and he's pre preaching that God is creator, that you've got all these 10,000 gods around, but there's only one God. Let me tell you who he is. So in, in Paul's address to the Athenians, he, he quotes an, an, a, a philosopher that the Athenians knew. And he uses that to try to convince them that, that God is the only God, that Jehovah God is the only creator. Well, here in Jude, Jude uses a, a book that is not part of the canon of Scripture. It's called the Book of Enoch. That's more than likely where this story comes from. The Book of Enoch is not part of our 66 books because there's all kinds of contradictions in there. But yet it was used as a historical book to, to kind of understand the history of the Israelites. And, and Jude apparently wanted to use this story out of that book. It was a story that his hearers would have understood. And the story goes like this. So Moses, as you remember, sinned against God and was not allowed to go into the promised land. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is at the end of his life. God allows him to see the promised land, but is not going to allow him to go in. Moses then dies. And so then the question arrives, well, who buried Moses? Well, it's interesting. It says the Lord did. It says that, that the Lord God himself took care of the body of Moses. And we don't know where his body is. There is no tomb anywhere that we've been able to find, at least not to this point. So apparently God didn't want us to know where Moses' grave is, more than likely because the Israelite people had such revere for him, they might have even worshipped him. Well, Satan gets into this, and this is Michael the archangel, who's a very powerful angel, and there's this battle going on between Satan and, and this archangel, and in that moment, it would have been easy for Michael to arrogantly try to handle this on his own. But instead of trying to handle it on his own, he says, I'm going to call upon the Lord to rebuke you because that's his role, not mine. Notice what else he says after this. He said, verse 10, but these people, talking about the false teachers that he's addressing, these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. You see that word blaspheme? It's a powerful word. Here's the best way I can tell you what the word blaspheme means. We are here today to worship and adore and love our Creator, the Godhead Trinity, Christ, the risen Savior. We're, we're here to adore Him, to worship Him, to love Him. Blasphemy is exactly the opposite of that. It is hatred for God. It is scoffing at God. It is making fun of God. It is, it is joking about God. It is it is attributing evil to God. So everything that you know and think about in worship, blasphemy is the exact polar opposite. And here we find out that these false teachers are blasphemers. They're not worshipers. They may present themselves as worshipers. Where does it flow from? Well, the next characteristic is the arrogance they have an arrogance. They have an arrogance about God. They, they believe that they are the source of truth. They are listening to their flesh and therefore scoff at anything that God would say. Don't, are you not hearing this today, especially with, again within the realm of sexuality? That we're to cast off all these old Puritan, old religion ideas and you're to listen to me, some, some authoritarian, some, some guy who's the expert. My goodness, our world is filled with experts. Have you noticed this? Every time you turn the TV on, there's a whole panel of experts telling me what I'm supposed to believe, telling me that what, I, what I'm supposed to, what I know to be true, they're saying, no, it's exactly the opposite of that. Experts. And among those experts is an arrogance. They scoff at God, even make fun of what you believe and what I believe. That's a characteristic of a false teacher. Look at verse 11. He goes back in the Old Testament for some more illustrations. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. The way of Cain. The way of Cain. So Adam and Eve, they sin in the garden. They're cast out of the garden. The curse of God falls upon this planet, upon Adam, upon Eve, just as he promised. And 
they end up having children and Cain and Abel. They grow up and they're, they're, one of them at least is worshiping and honoring God. And it says in the text that he was giving a sacrifice to God. We don't know exactly what it was, but whatever he was giving, God was pleased with it. The other brother, Cain, was also giving a sacrifice to God, but God was not pleased with it. And we find out later in the text, the reason God's not pleased with it is because there's something inherently wrong with the heart of Cain. So you have one son who is truly worshiping God, the other son who is, well, blaspheming God. Eventually, God tells him, says, look, Cain, uh, the devil is crouching outside of your door. He desires to have your heart. Eventually, Cain is eat up with jealousy and hatred, and that leads him to murder. The first murder in human history happens when Cain kills his own brother. God says his blood calls out to me from the ground. So what is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is jealousy that leads to hatred, that leads to murder. Well, I would never take another life. Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that we can hate someone on, our, on the inside of our heart to such a degree that it's on the same level as murdering them. And we never picked up a knife, we never picked up a gun. Jude says this is a characteristic of a false teacher. Jealousy, hatred, murder, just a, a very vile spirit, a very vile person, someone who cares nothing for anyone else, only their own gain. Look at verse 11. He talks about for themselves the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam was a, was a guy who was gifted by God, but he takes that gift and uses it for profit. And he uses it for profit against the enemies of God's people. And so Balaam was paid to pronounce a curse over God's people. He kind of refuses to do that, but he still accepts the money. And then later on, tells these enemies of God's people how to overthrow the Israelites. And why did he do it? Greed. And that's the next characteristic of a false teacher. I may offend some of you right here, but I need to tell you this because it's, you need to hear it. It's not as prevalent now, I guess, as it was, but you can still find this quite a bit on the internet now. I think everything's shifted to there as far as the appeal. But guys, men on a stage, women on a stage with a huge, huge ministry, and they're telling you that if you'll send them $1,000, they will uh, cry into a handkerchief, and that handkerchief has healing powers, and you can, you can take that handkerchief and you can hold it to your body and pray over it, and it'll, it'll heal you of any disease. Or if you'll just put your hand on the computer screen, the person on the computer is guaranteeing you that they will heal you of all of your infirmities because they have that power. It's almost like they are God-like, and they're telling these things. But, of course, it's always connected to a check that you need to write, and you need to give it to them. Folks, they're lying. False teachers, misleading hundreds and thousands of people for the sole purpose of separating you from your money. Greed. He also talks about Korah's rebellion. This was a group of people within the Israelites after they had come out of Egyptian bondage who decided that Moses shouldn't be the leader anymore. So they get 250 people together who agree, and, and they're, going to, uh, they're going to take over the leadership of the nation of Israel. The only problem was that God didn't call them. God called Moses. And so God destroys these people in a single moment of time. Have you ever heard of a church where there were a group of people inside the church who started a whole bunch of rumors about the pastor that weren't true? And the next thing you know, instead of it being one or two people, now it's 60, 75, 100 people. And the next thing you know, they're having private meetings in people's homes to talk about the pastor and his failures. And he's the only one that's not being talked to. You ever heard any stories like that? And the next thing you know, they have a called business meeting for the sole purpose of kicking the pastor to the curb. But before they do, they bring him up in front of the congregation and berate him with false accusations. Have you heard anything like that? Maybe, you're, maybe you haven't. I've heard of it a hundred times or more. 
Korah's rebellion, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. Jude is now going to shift his focus to say, okay, now when these people get into your fellowship, this is what you can expect. And he uses some incredible imagery here. Listen to what he says. He says, verse 12, these are hidden reefs. He gives us five illustrations here. Hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves. It's the imagery of, of, of a boat in the water. Maybe that boat's coming in to port. The water's nice and calm on top, but like right below the surface of the water, there's these reefs that can rip a hole in the bottom of the boat and sink the boat even before it docks. He says these false teachers, they've, slept, they, they, they've come in unannounced. They've presented themselves as sheep. He says they are enjoying your love feast. The early church would come together and they would have a meal, a fellowship meal together. But also part of that fellowship meal is they would observe communion together. He says, Jesus says, they're there in that love feast celebrating alongside you as though they're just like you. He says, but what they actually are are reefs underneath the water who are going to rip a hole in the boat that you're trying to stay afloat in. He says, they're going to destroy you from the inside out. He says, they're shepherds who feed themselves rather than serving others. That's what they are. You can tell who they are. Look at this next illustration. He says, they're waterless clouds swept along by winds. In, in this world that we read in the Bible, the Middle Eastern world, very dry, very arid. So when clouds would, would form, people would get excited because you feed your family based off the crops that you're trying to, to grow and you need rain. So if clouds gathered and it looks like, oh, wow, rain's coming, everybody got excited because you didn't get that much rain and then, then all of a sudden, these clouds that are coming in, the wind just blows them right over and they keep going and there's no rain to be found. Jesus says these false teachers are just like that. They have a lot of promise, at least initially. They, make a, they, they, seem, they seem to have a lot to offer. But at the end of the day, they're just a puff of wind. They're here and then they're gone. Boasting with little to deliver, all talk, no action. Notice what else he says. He says, they're fruitless trees and laid on them twice dead and uprooted. Trees in this context, if they had not borne fruit by autumn, then you got a problem. He says here, these trees, these false teachers are like fruit trees that even in late autumn haven't borne any fruit at all. So when you, when you look at their life, that there's no fruit of the Spirit in their life at all. You know the fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, kindness, peace, gentleness, long-suffering, those kinds of things. You don't see any of that. Rather, what you see is the fruits of unrighteousness, hatred, coarseness, no boundaries. He says they're like fruitless trees. They bear no fruit of the Spirit. They have no fruit of the Spirit in them, and they've borne no fruit in the kingdom at all. And he says, they're trees half twice dead. Their roots are dead and they bear no fruit. They are worthless to be uprooted and thrown away. Verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up foam of their own shame. You go down and you walk along the beach and you, you know, maybe the water's really rough. Maybe it's high tide and those waves are coming and crashing, right? And when those waves come in and crash, it leaves this foam behind. And you know as well as I do, you're walking down the beach and all that foam is there. You don't walk in that, do you? It just looks a little nasty. It looks a little filthy. It's got dirt in it, and maybe some trash out of the water, maybe some seaweed. You, you, you walk around it, don't you? What an incredible illustration. Jude says, these false teachers are just like that. They make a lot of noise. They're boisterous. But when you take a close look, man, there's a lot of filth in their life that they're trying to justify. Waves that turn to foam that reveal who they really are. And then the final one, he says, they're wandering stars for in the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. They're wandering stars. They burn brightly for a while. Man, they're impressive. Man, it seems like we've got ourselves a great leader who just joined our church only to find out that in a few months you can't find them. And it was as if they were never there. Jude warns us 
about the false teachers, and he gives us all kinds of characteristics. So when you look at all of them, when you look at all of them, let me go back over them, unbelief, rebellion, sexual immorality, they introduce a new truth source, arrogance, jealousy, hatred, and murder, that's following the path of Cain, greed, and they're very selfish. That was Korah. Very selfish. They're hidden reefs, waterless clouds, fruitless trees, wild waves of the sea with filth that is part of their life. They're wandering stars. They're here today, gone tomorrow. Do we have now a profile here? Do we have a profile? Yes. Not to say that every single false teacher has every one of these characteristics, but I guarantee you that one or more of them are going to come to the surface pretty quick, especially when you get to know them a little bit. So what do we do with this? Well, here's the first thing I want you to, to think about. I want you to really consider this. I want you, as a response to what Jude is saying here, I want you to make sure you check the character and the content of the one you follow, including me. You have a lot of sources in your life right now that are feeding you truth. And I'm one of them. And you have every right to check my character and to check what I'm teaching. I invite you to do so. Now what you're going to find out is you have a pastor who has a lot of failures in his life. You have a pastor who drops the ball with his family, drops the ball in the ministry, and he has to make amends for that on a regular basis. So what you're going to find, if, if you want to come and have a conversation with me about where I am and what my character is, I welcome that. But week after week, Sunday after Sunday, I am striving to honor Christ in all that I do. I may not always get it right, but I am not going to intentionally mislead you. I am not going to tell you to, at this back door, if you could write me a check, I've never done it in 10 and a half years. If you want to give to this ministry, we would welcome that. And I'm not up here to put myself on a, plas uh, on a, on a, on a pinnacle here to say, hey, I'm worthy of following. What I'm saying is, is you are welcome to check my character and check my content. I welcome it. As a matter of fact, I would encourage you to do so. But not only just with me, but I would also say that you need to check the character and the content of the YouTube influencer that you are drinking every bit of what they're teaching and your kids as well on a daily basis. Are you, are you checking their character and content? That TV preacher that you're listening to and watching, I'm not against TV preachers, not at all, as long as they're teaching the Word. I listen to podcasts. There, there are podcasts that I listen to of, of men that I, that I trust, but the reason that I trust them is I have watched their character for quite some time. I have listened to them teach for quite some time. And the very moment that they depart from the true teaching of God's Word, I am D-O-N-E, done with their teaching ministry. And so should you, including me. Look at their character. Look at their content. I know that not everybody that's here today is part of this church. If you're part of another church, the same is true there. And listen, any pastor, any leader of any ministry that gets upset with you because you're checking character and content, you should be wary of. As pastors, we are an open book to our congregations because we are accountable to you. We're accountable to God first. I'm accountable to my wife, and I'm accountable to this congregation. So as such, I'm here to serve you. So first of all, check the character and the content of the ones you're allowing into your life to influence you. Check the character and the content of the ones who are influencing your kids. Secondly, you got to be ready to give an answer for what you believe and why. You have got to get to a place. You have got to start moving in a direction where you are not just satisfied listening to me, that you have got to be getting into God's Word and understanding why you believe what you believe. I heard a testimony recently, actually I read it, of a mom who been in church her whole life. But her beliefs, her, her structure of a belief was based solely on what the pastor has been telling her her whole life. And one day she got confronted with what she believed and all she could do was repeat what's been told to her. 
She had no way to get into God's word on her own and be able to defend her faith and what she believes. So on the one hand, she believed what is right and accurate, but she had no way to connect God's word to what she believed. Does that describe you? If tomorrow you got confronted with what you believe about marriage, could you defend what you believe about marriage? If you were confronted tomorrow about the deity of Christ, and you're sitting at a lunchroom table or a break room table, and sitting across from you as a Jehovah Witness who has been trained and equipped, trained and equipped with the teachings of Charles Taze Russell. And they look at you and I say, I know that you are a Baptist or you're a Christian, you're an evangelical, and you believe that Jesus is God. Where is your proof to back that up? Well, Pastor Jeff says, that's only going to take you so far. you got to be ready to defend your faith. Why? Because more attacks are coming. They're coming, and they're coming fast. And they seek to devour, to divide. They seek to, to push you on your heels, to make you to doubt what you've known to be true your whole life. The, the, the purpose of this is to put you on your heels where you're like, well, wait a minute, maybe, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe they're right. It may be just for us to get along. I'll just agree with you. Check the character and content of the one you follow. Be ready to give an answer for what you believe and why. And then finally, listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, if you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The Holy Spirit is the one who helped author all of this guide people to write down what was written down in these pages. So when you read it, the Holy Spirit helps you to understand it. If you're born again, the excuse, I don't understand, goes away. If you'll read it, seek the Holy Spirit, he will guide you and help you to understand it. And then we have all kinds of resources to help you with that. But here's the one thing I really want you to pay attention to. There will be a time where you hear something, a truth proclaimed in culture, and that Holy Spirit on the inside of you automatically, there's something skeptical that raises up in the back of your head. Wait a minute, that... Some's not right about that. Don't run from that. Lean into that. Don't run from that. The Holy Spirit is there to, to help you discern truth from lies. And when you get that, that sense that something's not right, that's not just your subconscious. If you are a believer in Christ, that's the Holy Spirit saying you need to get back into Word and verify what that, if that's true or not. Being skeptical is not a bad thing. Not at all. Not for a follower of Jesus. Not in the world we live in today. In closing, um, I think one of the most shocking things about the Jonestown massacre is the people who were interviewed years later in this documentary that I watched. It, it really shocked me. I think this bothered me as much as what actually happened in that jungle. Some of the survivors, there was less than 100 survivors out of that event in the jungle. Some of them ran into the jungle and were found. There was one woman who stayed there the entire time until 24 hours later, people came in and rescued her. Can't imagine what that was like. They interviewed these folks, and without fail, they almost all agreed on one thing, and that was how great it was before what happened in the jungle. In other words, they were reminiscing about just how beautiful and great it was. And if, if this thing in the jungle had just not happened, then, then it would have been okay. In other words, in their mind, they thought that, that what happened in the jungle was just this like one-off thing. And if that hadn't happened, everything would have been wonderful. And what they failed to realize is that all those years of the people's temple, you had a wolf in sheep's clothing. And even to this day, the survivors, or whatever the day that documentary was, the survivors still aren't sure if he was a wolf or not. How do people get to that place? It didn't happen in one day. Over time, not questioning the content or the character, and eventually you begin to acquiesce, and the next thing you know, you begin to, to believe what they believe without even questioning it. And I'm not saying that every false teacher leads where Jim Jones did, but I can tell you this, every false teacher is just as destructive and just as dangerous. 
So I ask you, do you know why you believe? Have you taken the time to study for yourself? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.